Hello, Laura. Thank you so much for joining oh, me today. It's brilliant to see you in your forest. Mm. For those of you who can see you on screen, can see the video, you've got a lot of snow in my forest today in Cheltenham because we've had a massive dump this weekend. Yes. So imagine a snowy forest, a bit like Game of Thrones, but slightly less harrowing. A lovely winter wonderland. Mm. Yeah. Very lovely. Well, thank you so much. Um, and I'm really excited to um, to be talking to you today because I know um, that you have a really exciting story to tell. Um, and genuinely, you are one of the most inspiring people I know. So when I was thinking about doing these interviews for this podcast, your name came up in flashing lights in my head um, because I, you know, you well, you've done a TED talk, which I'm sure you'll talk about as well. Um, which moved me to tears and um, genuinely, I think. It moved me to tears as well, if you've seen it, not yes. to or anything, yes. but. It made everybody cry for all the best reasons. So, um, so yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time um, for, for joining me today. So we first met about four years ago. Mm. Um, and at the time you were a strategy di director for a um, smallish business but working with very big names. Mm. Would you mind telling us a little bit about what you were doing and then ultimately what, what led, we'll get to, what led to the change in your, your career? Absolutely. So I was strategy director at the Innovation Beehive and they worked with all sorts of interesting clients across FMCG and retail and pharma and, oh my gosh, uh, all sorts of service uh, professional services and, and different sectors of society and actually we met in the growth hub in Sirencester which is one of the most sustainable buildings I, I suspect in Gloucestershire um, probably part of what attracted me like a moth to a flame it's, it's a really amazing space and it's an innovation hub so lots of other small business owners there we certainly really appreciated having other people on the journey who were trying to innovate um, locally and most of our work was probably national or international um, so you know we'd be working on money 2020 looking at conferences uh, for how transactions happen online we'd be working with mcdonald's on their people um, strategy and on how they connect people on the front line in a high stress position with with the uh, board level exec and make sure there's a voice kind of flowing up and down um, so a lot of culture change a lot of transformation organizational transformation and then innovation in around product services and business models flowing out of it um, and yeah I was working with the the amazing innovator Mock O'Keefe who's like an author and he had this brilliant relationship with Google where he would go and do speeches quarterly to C-suite execs and it was just phenomenal I mean he he's a brilliant brain on culture change anyway but I'd never been inside any of Google so Google being you know quite iconic it was pretty cool to go and see them from the inside and talk to some of the guys working there around what their what their challenges were and sort of compare notes and uh, and meet some really interesting people so yeah um, yeah, proper juicy project huh yeah well yeah that was that was just a kind of a venue space they very kindly let us sort of moonlight in but I, I know Mock had had a, a long-standing relationship with them and with the lady that ran that space had been her coach for many years so um yeah lots of interesting uh and systemic kind of quite complex uh innovation challenges to solve so business is going through a lot of turbulent change and um uh, with often with lots of different affiliates all around the world lots of different cultural nuances um so it, 
as with all innovation, 50% of it was about people, was about the human process. Um, and uh, I guess I've always loved innovating and trying to understand what makes people tick and understand behaviour change, particularly positive behaviour change. Mm-hmm. Um, and that connects back into things like purpose and vision. So it sort of worked really well. My brain was more uh, organisational transformation and strategy and you know, all of that design part, human-centered design. And then I guess Mock brought that brilliant side around cultural change and how you manage from C-suite to creating the conditions for that to to not just be a great idea, but actually see the light of day in the real world as an innovation. Otherwise, it's just a lovely idea, really, isn't it? It's not innovation if it never actually happens. It's just a beautiful conversation. (laughs) (laughs) We get it out there, birth it into the real world. But look at you. I mean, we know that you've moved on since that role. Mm. And you still talk about that role with with so much passion. It was clearly something that you really enjoyed doing and you were really um, emerged in it, if you like. So what happened? Can you talk us through what what this, you know, the big career change was and how how it all came about? Well, COVID, by and large, um, you know, a a small business and with big clients, but but one of our biggest clients worked in the aviation sector was literally grounded by COVID just as we were about to launch a massive project. So I went on furlough, was homeschooling my kids um, and McDonald's sort of, you know, had to do whatever they had to do to sort of batten down the hatches and protect their business. So all of a sudden our pipeline of work became very, very thin and we had a large number of very senior people um, and not enough workflow to come through. And I'd worked for myself before. I'd known Mock a long time, and and it became quickly obvious to me that you can't. Yeah, you know, it it wasn't going to you know, carry on. You couldn't pay for all these people when there wasn't the workflow to come. And and it was really unclear what would happen next. So I guess I had this time where I wasn't totally twiddling my thumbs. I was trying to homeschool my eight and three year old, um, which was new and different. Um, and it was also the hottest summer on record. I don't know if you remember back to. Uh, 2019 and it's like you know absolutely scorching summer so I just found myself sort of slightly giving up sometimes on the the screen time schooling and just taking the kids out into the woods we're very lucky in Cheltenham to have woods a little bit like what's behind me on the doorstep I don't think we realized the extent of the woodland that sits around us until Covid so we were going out that was the only place I could find shade and I've probably already always known since I was a kid that it's just really calming and um, really restorative to be in nature. So when the kids were feeling a bit disconnected or a bit, you know, missing their friends, we could be out in nature. There'd be other people at a safe distance that you could sort of interact with. And you had the whole of the the, the shadow and the shade and the loveliness of, of nature to sort of pass the time. And yeah, I was really appreciative of it. Um, that's a bit of a long answer to a short question. So there was a turning point, and I suppose I, I recognised that I was going to get made redundant. Um, well, we we talked about it, and that was the the obvious choice. And I've been doing some freelance work because I wasn't allowed to get paid work while I was furloughed with a, a brilliant agency called United Edge. They do social and environmental justice, and they were based out of Indonesia, and they wanted to move it online because of COVID for them as well. So they had this amazing group of about 250 people, largely from the majority South, so Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, Pacific Island nations, and we would be talking about um, the development sector and how to innovate and improve what they were doing. And one day we're on a little 
breakout group and everyone's sort of politely introducing themselves going oh you know I help with hurricane relief in the Pacific Island nations and I help prevent uh, human trafficking of children in Siem Reap in Cambodia what do you do Laura and I was like um, sort of perpetuate the growth of western capitalist brands and I was thinking in my head compared to all the people that I'm meeting on this call not enough was like the headline and we spent six weeks we'd meet every week to kind of move through the the modules that they devised um, of the online course that we created and it very quickly became obvious that a lot of the work they were doing around hurricane crisis relief and drought you know managing micro enterprises were as a result of of the uh, climate change yeah and actually, climate change was being caused by things that I'd been doing on a daily basis without even realising it in my privileged, westernised, you know, minority North lifestyle. And I was horrified by it. It was a real kind of chastening moment for me that I was meeting people who were at the front edge of climate change, who had been suffering disproportionately for decades because of something not consciously that I'd done. But I guess my actions, my behaviours, my buying power all of that had created this this dynamic where I was creating suffering on the other side of the world and I felt really bad about it I was like this is crazy I've sort of I've always been interested in sustainability but I hadn't appreciated the uh the injustice perhaps of what what was being I was being confronted with and I was like I've got to find out about this so I was like you know reading every book I could lay my hand on watching all the documentaries so David Attenborough yep I'll have it you know Johan Rockström the world leading climate scientist he, he clubbed together with David Attenborough during lockdown to make Breaking Boundaries amazing Netflix documentary if you haven't seen it and then I was I went back to university I was like I have to I have to understand exactly what's gone wrong here and what I can do about it and yeah. so I went back to Cambridge to the Institute for Sustainable Leadership thought I'm going to understand the science and then I'm going to understand the solutions and figure out what I can do to sort this out or to, to do something positive here. Because the message that I'm getting loud and clear is this is going to have a knock on effect to my children. And it's already had a knock on effect to millions of children in other parts of the world, even if I wasn't perhaps as aware as I could have been around all of it. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of lockdown was an interesting time. And I had. I suppose the privilege of being furloughed by by my former employers, the time and the headspace then yeah. really think about my purpose and think, I'm not okay about this actually. This this isn't this isn't okay. I, now that I understand this, and it's not a judgment on other people, it's a kind of with this knowledge, I want to act. I want to do, I want to use all that knowledge. There must be something from these 20 years of working in innovation that can plug into an understanding of the science and the solutions that can create a bit of a ripple effect here that can build some momentum and get some positive change going because I think if other people understood the size of the problem and you know that they could actually do something about it we're really clear on the solutions they go yeah great tell me more you know but and, and this is what I love about you Laura that you know I think we all feel we all know that the challenges what the challenges are in the world. Um, yet so few of us are actually doing something to, to, to make a difference. Um, and, and maybe we're all making small changes in our own little way. Um, but, but I think a lot of us still feel like there could be more that we could do. And I just love that you've taken it to the complete extreme. I don't know if you want to share with people what you did with your life savings, for example. <laughs> 
Well, so when I went to study at Cambridge, which again, it's part of my privilege, I had a little bit of money um, to invest in doing this, this eight-week course, which I'm now an assessor on. It's a brilliant course if you ever want to understand about climate change. Um, so our COP26 was coming up. I did it in the summer and then we had COP26 coming up um, a year later. And with some of the people that I'd met there, we were trying to work out how to help small businesses. And um, one of the things that, that became quickly obvious is that there wasn't a lot of policy or subsidies or grants or you know tax breaks for small businesses. It was all pointed at big business. And we almost wanted to go to COP26 and do this art installation with like 100 cardboard boxes and one of them coloured in bright yellow, like neon yellow going, only 1% is getting all the goodies, right? This is madness. If we want to transform our society, we can't be just focusing on big business because you know 99% of people in employment in the UK are working for a small or medium-sized enterprise yeah what what about those guys and their pathways are much quicker and simpler we should absolutely be blowing wind in their sails and enabling them creating the infrastructure uh, giving them funding so that they can get get their net zero pathways off the ground and it wasn't happening so I sort of was debating different routes into how to do something to do with education or whatever but for COP26 I had decided I wanted to be part of a group of ambitious small businesses who are trying to each plant a million trees by 2030 they're called the million tree pledge and I'm really small like I'm a one-woman band I just went back to running my own consultancy which I'd, I'd done a decade previously I was made redundant at the beginning of the 2008 recession so I suppose I'd, I'd had pattern of being given that choice between immediately getting another job or going a solo and decided to go solo just to see if I could make it and you know I'd been working in London for quite a, a prestigious innovation agency there which is where I met Mock from, from the Beehive so that had worked out because a big client had followed me and I'd been able to get enough work to, to sort of get over the hump of imposter syndrome and fear of failure to, to go on my own so I knew I could do it but, but I took my life savings to put into the Million Tree Pledge and my uh, pledge to them was um, I don't know if I have the assets to be able to plant a million trees with just me but I'm pretty sure I can find nine other ambitious small business owners to collaborate with me to make this happen so can you let me join on that basis we'll have a collaborative forest we will just invite other small and, and micro businesses in because probably a lot of them feel like a drop in the ocean like them planting trees but the amount of money that they'd have to devote towards that isn't going to be enough to plant a million. But together, we could probably thunderclap and do it. And COP26, this brilliant moment. So we went up to the Net Zero uh, Festival. It was part of the Fringe Festival at COP26. If you went to COP26, it was like Fort Knox. I mean, you had to walk or ride for three miles to get into the only bridge across in Glasgow that would allow you access to the green zone which was full of BP and SSE telling you about how amazing they were. I mean, it, it didn't brilliantly work for me on a business level, but the Fringe Festival did. That was full of what appeared to be all the small businesses who'd been trying to get into the main show but couldn't. We're having a really interesting debate. So they said, right, military pledge, you can have a little, you can have a, a table and a pop-up banner. And I was like, we're the military pledge. that We can't be having tables and banners made out of, you know, plastics and all of that. We've got to do something more imaginative. So why don't we do like a giant zero? And we use this story of the the, um, the hummingbird, the smallest bird in the forest, uh, which is from a brilliant allegory by Wangari Matai, who's a humanitarian activist from Kenya, who's now passed away, sadly. But she tells this brilliant allegory. Please YouTube, Google it afterwards if you haven't seen it, um, that my friend saw in assembly for, with his seven-year-old kids 
uh, we're doing it as their assembly that day. And, you know, the forest's on fire, all the animals come out of the forest and they've got tears in their eyes because their home's going up in flames. And Hippo hits, hits this tiny buzzing movement, sort of going back and forth to the fire, to the little river, to the fire, to the little river. And he sort of pauses for a second. He goes, Hummingbird, you're not trying to put the fire out, are you, with that tiny drop of water in your beak? And Hummingbird squares up to him and he goes, well, Hippo, if you filled your giant jaws with water, an elephant, if you filled the gallons of water that your trunk can hold, and Pelican, if you filled your enormous beak and we all put it on the fire, then maybe, just maybe, it would be enough to put it out. And all the animals turn around and they go back to the river. So I love this idea. And it was just so, you know, children get it. OK, I go into primary schools all the time. They have no trouble understanding when you explain climate change. I don't make children eco-anxious, but when you give them the principles of how the, the atmosphere is heating up, they get it. They want to act on it. And you can give them lots of positive things they can, you can point them towards. So we thought, well, how can we make that an art installation? And I've been on a retreat. I'd driven by electric vehicle to Italy. That was a journey and a half thousand miles each way in a MG. Almost ran out of electricity, but didn't. <laughs> so it is possible. I've got fed up of people saying, oh, I can't get an EV because I work in Bristol. And, you know, I'm not sure I'll get there and back. I'm like, I'm going to drive to Italy a thousand kilometres to prove that you can go range in EVs. You just need to plan a little bit. Anyway, that's another story. So we get there. Um, on my retreat, I'd met an amazing artist who'd broken a hip and for whatever reason had been in hospital folding peace cranes and had folded a thousand peace cranes. And I was like, that's amazing. And, and she showed me what she'd done with the displays. Someone had displayed them in this kind of monastery in Italy and it just looked amazing and I was like wow what could we do with that and then my cousin sent me this photo she's a used to be a costumier at the Royal Opera House in Paris wow someone as this artist had taken like I don't know if it was fish wire or something invisible and with tiny dots of wax had glued feathers onto it in this beautiful zero and I was like wow it's like a giant zero like net zero we could do something with that what if we what if we used fish wire so it looked like it was they're flying in midair and we just folded loads and loads of these hummingbirds and they all had sustainably printed logos of, of small businesses from all around the UK like this brilliant so that's what we did we got all these businesses from all over the place who couldn't go but wanted a presence and we printed with Tewksbury printers brilliant sustainable printers if you ever need one helped us print them um and Culpepper and company did the artwork thanks to them god it's, you see it was such a lovely collaboration it's we had yes. to put all these small businesses to make it happen then yes. we talked to all the um the guys that ran the um I don't know what you call them like the little plant plantarium shops in Glasgow and the little uh, nurseries to find a tree um, so we had little messages with some of the facts about how many we've cut down three trillion trees um, in our lifetime uh, and we need to restore two trillion trees back into the ground to, to draw down existing carbon emissions uh, and some of the brilliant stats that David Attenborough shares. So we'd sort of pegged these from little, they, they, they hired us plants for the day. So we created a little mini forest. We had our giant zero of hummingbirds and then we had this little trestle table and bless them the brewery where we did it sort of went from you can have a tiny corner sort of to one side to wow this sounds really creative why don't you be at the entrance so when people came to the fringe festival they just sat down and folded hummingbirds with us i'm like what's the, what's the humming what's the origami about i'm like oh it's about this story about you know the hummingbird so instead of ramming climate change down people's throats i've always been interested in how can you be more creative and imaginative mm. about it? You know, mm. no one needs to be made to feel more guilty or burdened by it. 
how can you tell a different story that's about the solution and about the collaboration and about not feeling disempowered and helpless and like a drop in the ocean but being like that little hummingbird who goes I don't care how small I am in the forest I can do if if everyone did the maximum they could do we've got we've got this you know and what's the alternative you know even if I'm wrong we create a world with cleaner air with um, more shared prosperity across our, our communities with better uh, agriculture that's that's restored our soils you know um there's just so much love more circular yeah. economies where we don't throw as much waste away and um and have such an impact on our biodiversity so there's so many positives it's like that little cartoon there's that no are. downside here is there <laughs> i mean if, even if we're wrong we just make the world a better place absolutely generation absolutely and so, i don't know how, how you see purpose connecting into the legacy that you leave but yeah it does somehow for me yeah, well, you're going to leave one hell of a legacy, Laura. Can you tell us what what you what it is you do now? Well, I so I don't how do I describe what I do now? I'm sort of halfway between a climate consultant and a climate coach. I don't I don't work one to one with businesses anymore. But what I'm um, so part of my time, I am educating other small businesses. So I, I'm. Uh, co-facilitator on clean growth uk's net zero 360 course so that is working with brighton university's free carbon calculator they've this year built a carbon calculator tool specifically for smes and up until now you've had to pay one two three thousand pounds to get a common footprint analyst to go away ask you a load of questions come up with your footprint share it back and then a bit like an accountancy process every year you would get your annual it's a very complex process isn't it so i have spoken to somebody about this and it's yeah it used to be complex i think well it it is relatively complex but i don't think filling in a calculator tool is so they've built a tool that to fill in is relatively simple so that's 20 percent of the work to get the data to fill in the tool that's 80% of the work. That's where you're having to go and talk to your supply chain and um, just go through things like your utility bills and your water bills. It's it's, uh, it's not difficult in itself. You've just not gone through the process of asking yourself those questions before. So we handhold businesses through that to say, it's not actually that hard. It's just rewiring your brain a little bit to ask some different questions, but it is requiring headspace and resource. And it's creating transparency so they can see, okay, well, now I understand what my carbon footprint is. I didn't know that refrigeration, like F gases that that we use in coolants and refrigeration are four and a half thousand times to a hundred thousand times more potent than carbon dioxide. So if I've got loads of freezers going on in my small business, you know, that's going to mean I've got a really big footprint. And if those freezers are leaking or really old and whatever, that's, that's terrible. I could do something about that. You know, so once we give people eyes on, the problem the solutions become almost like a no-brainer and I really feel like the more we can educate as many businesses across the UK and my mission is to get a million small businesses to net zero by 20, 2025 so we need to motor next year we've probably done about a few thousand and we, we were just talking about it actually this morning saying if we want to get to a million you know we need to scale rapidly we need to change what we're doing next year I feel like we've prototyped a lot of what we want to say and now we need to sort of find new ways of saying it um, but but that's brilliant because then they're, they're more resilient. They're more resilient to think about, okay, we've just had a dump of snow. How's that affected my supply chain? Well, all of a sudden my employees can't get into work or 
um, my children are at home and doing homeschooling, so I can't do all my calls quite as cleanly or whatever it might be. We know that the climate is, is changing. We've seen that this summer. We've seen the floods. We've seen the increased storms. We've seen the extreme heat. I'm working with a load of um, local surgeries in Cheltenham who are trying to decarbonise primary care. Their freezers and fridges could barely keep up with the heat to keep the medication at the right temperature for them to use it. I mean, this is life or death stuff. If they don't have medication for cancer patients, it's very serious for the NHS. So we know that as a society, we have to transform and we have to get our heads around these new challenges. But um, the way, the pathway to doing it is really, really clear. It's not that we don't understand how to do it. It's just that we're, we're just, we're not doing it. You know, we're going down business as usual. I think in many cases we're not quite uncomfortable enough yet because government isn't mandating us, but that will come through. It's it's mandated for big business from this this April and that will trickle down through because we're all part of someone else's supply chain over the next couple of years. So I feel like the low carbon economy will be as disruptive as the digital economy was. And I don't know if we remember how we didn't really think digital was going to be that big a deal. And then all of a sudden we can see during COVID it's been massive. But but if you take ourselves back 15 years digital and what it's done for us with big data and communication has been um, groundbreaking and the low carbon economy will be groundbreaking either because government policy guides it to be or because nature forces it to be and I'm hoping it's going to be government policy it's not moving quickly enough at the moment and I think COP27 showed us business has to take a lead with the backing of private equity and and the, the big finance banks so yeah, I think it's fair to say that you're not going to be twiddling your thumbs anytime soon. I think um, there's a hell of a lot of work to do. Mm. And, uh, and I'm just so impressed that you're really spearheading the way for, for a lot of um, small businesses and hopefully bigger businesses as well are going to be taking taking note of how change can happen. So I'm really, I, I, I just think what you're doing is absolutely brilliant. For anybody who's listening to this going oh you know it's all well and good for you because you had furlough and you know and you had time to think about what to do what would your advice be for somebody who's um you know perhaps in a role that isn't quite um aligned with what they you know with their values or things that they feel strongly about and they're contemplating making that change but but don't feel they're quite ready yet what would your advice be Whenever I've felt that I've got to those points, I've always tried to come back to purpose. Um, and I've needed a bit of headspace to do it. So it has often been when I've had a holiday, we've got Christmas holidays on our doorstep. So I and I personally like to go out into nature when I'm troubled by things. I, I like to walk in nature. So there maybe there's some place that feels tranquil or peaceful or somewhere that you can settle. And I would just encourage people to go out and really inquire into it and sometimes I literally just sit down with like a big bit of a3 I mean I'm a visual thinker so I sketch it out but I'll sketch out what are the points in my life where I felt connected to purpose where I felt alive or I felt really energized I felt like I was on fire I was happy I was uh it the best version of me and so I'll just draw it out and maybe it's when I was a teenager or maybe I did something when I when I was traveling or maybe there was just a particular person that I worked with and it just worked brilliantly so I've kind of sketched out these I don't know 10 moments on a page it's funny because I have this I did this with my husband I have a picture of it on the wall next to me over here of what we did with him 
Um, and it's got like him trekking up the Annapurna Sanctuary in Nepal. And when he was 40, he did this amazing cookery experience at Hugh Fernley's um, place. Mm. But anyway, I think once you once you look at those things, then you sort of drill into the elements of, so what were the ingredients that made me feel alive? And, and energy for me is such a, a great compass guide to purpose. If there's something that makes your energy go up, you know that you're onto a winner. It's making you feel good and it's allowing you to feel your best self. What are the conditions that you need to be your best self? And equally, the shadow side of that is what are the conditions that are constraining you or, or sucking your energy away yeah. or not making you feel like you could be your best self? And it may be a personality dynamic or it may just be the amount of time that you have to do different things you know I'm somebody who gets bored quite easily so I like project work I like being a consultant because you constantly change what you do mm -hmm. I remember I worked at WH Smith's in innovation and we had a grandmaster chess player who worked on the production line in the warehouse because he wanted a really monotonous job so that he could contemplate these epic massive chess games and he needed something <laughs> like <laughs> so each to their own there's no yeah. judgment on what those that thing might be what is it you need to be buzzed up um, and then once you know the things that are making you feel alive, well, what kinds of what is that telling you? You know, it could be something very different. Don't be constrained by what you thought in high school. I'm sure we're not at the, in our 40s and 50s constrained by that. But, you know, I think sometimes society leads us down these rabbit holes of you have to be a particular thing, you have to make a certain amount of money, you have to you know, do this. I just spent my life savings on planting trees in sub-Saharan Africa, you know. Um, I don't have a pension right now because I just spent all the money on planting trees because that was what was purposeful to me in this moment. And I'm prepared to work really, really hard to make up that gap because yeah. I'm not constrained by needing everything I point towards to be about long term finance and security. I think there's this there's a lot of fear that drives staying inside some kind of invisible box that we put ourselves in. Yeah. So I suppose one question is to always say, well, take money off the table. If money wasn't the object, what would I do? What would bring me alive? What would make my heart sing and make me be the best, best version of myself? And then who who do I know that can help me move towards that place? Yeah. Because they're for sure are relationships that you have. There are people that you know who can guide you, open doors for you, mentor you, Absolutely. study you, keep you honest so that you move towards that place. And the opposite is true, right? It is true as well, because, you know, we're, we do all have people in our lives that want us to stay exactly where we are. Thank you very much. And we'll, um, we'll encourage us to do so. So it's working out who the people are that are going to help us to get to that next place where we know we're going to be more fulfilled, more joyful, more alive. I love the best version of me. I've written it down. But I think you really hit the nail on the head there, that we all just want to be the best version of ourselves, don't we, at the end of the day? Yeah, and you can feel the people who you talk to and you have more energy at the end of the conversation. Absolutely, yeah. Something about well, I always have the best energy after I've spoken to you. Tell you, little child. I do with you as well, Yeshim. You know, there's there's been many times where you've asked me to do things and I thought, I don't really know what that's about, but because <laughs> it's Yeshim, I'll back it. You know, because you just you have an innate sense of things, and and don't be um frightened of the more than you don't have to intellectualize it necessarily. Yeah. I think sometimes you can just think about places. So what what I love about the sketching back through your life is it may be that you need to be more connected. You need to be in a place that is closer to a lake or the sea or mountains or hot weather or whatever it may be. Mm. 
there'll be things in there that are beyond human or you know that are important to you so what are all of those ingredients and how can you boil them together and and then obviously you don't live in a complete vacuum so how does that interrelate to the people that you're with and you know um and then hopefully you've got a supportive housemate partner sister dog um who can help help you on that journey and blow wind in your sails or best friend definitely have a friend who you can really confide in and I I talked to my daughter about this she's 10 a lot we've been talking a lot about what what is a true friend Um, and for me it's someone who is always pleased for you when things are going right there's no hint of sympathy and who um, equally really cares when things aren't going your way but will but will slightly um will hold you when you're erring off being doing doing what's best for you you know when you're erring away from choices that would allow you to be that best version of yourself um so those everybody needs one of those in their lives for sure yeah and and yeah and it may not be an obvious friend it may not be like the people you grew up with i've got plenty of mentors that i turn to who have different qualities be like kind of pseudo godparents in my life you know people who you can bounce things off and they they just they know some part of you I think we have friends that that relate to different facets of us we're almost like little diamonds aren't we and you sort of know the friend that you would turn to and uh, given the challenge that you're facing absolutely oh I've so enjoyed hearing your story and I hope other people will enjoy hearing it I'm sure they will and I want to thank you again because your time is precious you have a world to save um, and I'm not saying that in a flippant way at all I know that you know you are 100% dedicated to doing everything you can um, to make this world a better place um, as cheesy as it might might sound I, I love your mission um, so thank you so much for taking the time and um, hopefully I'll get to see you in person really soon I look forward to it I hope so too take care bye